number two, narrated by author David Thomas Kay. The Abbey of St. Mary of Furness, in the Veil of Deadly Nightshade, June 1240 AD. They rode the last mile in silence, a monastic peace amidst the monotonous clip-clop of hooves. They came to a halt on a grassy slope, where Daniel was assigned to stay behind with the pack horses. He watched his elders canter the charges up the gentle slope, and couldn't help but envisage a red cross blazoned across their white robes. Even their mounts stirred his imagination. One a powerful white stallion, the other a raven black, gracious and elegant. Daniel was already struggling with his kind of calling, and to travel in the company of such individuals was even more settling. Regardless of his respect for the two Templar brothers, their aura of superiority made him nervous. Can they sense the real truth of my presence, he thought. He'd been in awe of the brothers, ever since being told of their service with the French Templar. They impressed on him that they'd only served in the lower ranks, but the levelling had failed to stifle his dream. He watched in admiration as the two horsemen eased their mounts to the crest of the hill. The white horse whinnied and the hoof caressed the turf as flared nostrils snorted steam into the crisp, invigorating air. His rider released the reins and the horse's head lowered towards the tempting lush grass, white capped with glistening dew. Brother Joseph stretched forward, lifting slightly in the saddle, his mind alert, scanning the amphitheatre's timbered perimeter. The arena was bustling with activity, and the tower bells were announcing prime. The Abbey of St Mary of Furness was proclaiming the beginning of a new day, resplendent in its stature, its red stone walls swathed in early morning mist. Joseph dismounted and gently ran his open palm along the stallion's sweating mane. He patted its neck affectionately, and his curved nose wrinkled as he savoured the scent of horse flesh. The white stallion had been his companion since leaving France, and had many private conversations on the lonely country roads. Despite the innocence of the white habits, the two men were more than capable of their own defence. Both were of similar stature, of medium height and stocky build, lithe with their walk upright, brisk and military. Joseph checked that the sword and sheath was wrapped securely, a lasting routine from his service with the knights. The Cistercian monk was immaculate in the preparation, and it was no coincidence that his habit blended with that of his steed. He commenced his journey with the aim of being viewed as holier than holy and requested a white horse for his special commission. His intention was to set himself apart from the mundane image of a travelling monk, 
Workers in the fields had straightened from their tasks to observe them passing by in silence. Brother Joseph, leading his entourage, had been the subject of much speculation. The charade had been more than successful, and Joseph was convinced that it had contributed to a carefree journey on the lawless open roads. He had learned from the fountain's novice master that his young companion was a talented scribe. Daniel had been born in the North Yorkshire Abbey of Fountains. He was the youngest son of secular servants and had attended the monastery school from an early age. He became one of the Abbey's most talented students and was invited into the Brotherhood. Parents constantly reminded him of the struggles of his older siblings and counted outside of the Abbey's protection. A world of insecurity and often times of violence. They encouraged their youngest son to welcome with gratitude the offer of a monastic life. On Daniel's acceptance of the novitiate, a third of his day became devoted to prayer and meditation, a third to study and a third to manual labour, dining and leisure. Daniel often wondered if he had made the correct decision and his doubts only increased when his thoughts turned to the young secular families. I should have a family of my own, but how would I feed them? He had grown comfortable in the ways of the brotherhood, but as the time grew close to the taking of his vows, he was hesitant and becoming restless. Why did I willingly accept this task with such a feeling of errant excitement? His orders had been to stay close to his superiors and to assist them if necessary, not to the detriment of his writing commission. He would obey the order of his novice master, but the secret instructions of his abbot must be paramount. On the long journey from the Abbey of Fountains, he was content to trail behind the pack horses and exchange idle chatter with Philip. He felt more comfortable that way, and if he had any silent moments, they were usually in the presence of Joseph. Brother Joseph was informed that Daniel had been volunteered by the fountain novice master, assigned for the use of his native tongue, his skill with the pen, and his youth and strength. He was slightly taller than Philip and Joseph, slim and agile, but more casual in his manner. He was in the last year of his novitiate, and he decided to take his vows. A tonsil would interrupt his curly mop of red hair. Daniel nudged the flank of his grey mare, drawing the idling pack horses together. He watched them contentedly munch away at the lush grass, while he turned his thoughts to the mounts of his two companions. Philip's black horse was smaller than the white stallion. He explained that it was Arabic and rare in its colouring. The horse was to be a gift for the Archbishop of York, entrusted to him in France that the horse was still Philip's was not a question that Daniel had the courage to ask. Philip had begun the journey trailing the pack horses, but Daniel had eventually joined him, driven to distraction by the inquisitive probing of Joseph. Before starting out on the journey, the novice had been told that both Joseph and Philip had been members of a division of the French Knights Temple. For that reason alone, Daniel held them both in awe and felt guilty of his envy. 
They told him of signing over their wealth and taking vows of poverty, chastity, beauty and obedience, and of how they had been allowed to serve for a period of five years, after which they were sworn to continue their vows at the Church of Rome. was a widower who had served beneath the aristocratic knights as a lower-born sergeant. His work involved helping in the administration of the property of the order, a vocation that sat well with his present commission. Like Philip, he had worn a black tunic with a red cross and a black mantle. Philip was misguided into thinking that his family were descendants of an aristocratic family, and that somehow his ancestors had fallen on misfortune. He served in the light cavalry, also as a low-born sergeant, and secretly craved the honour of donning their aristocratic white robes. He had gradually become disillusioned with the Templar's monastic order, and finally come to accept that the donning of his white Cistercian habit would have to suffice. The commission of the two monks was unknown to Daniel, but he was sure it would be one in which they were both well suited. He had his doubts in mind that the manner they were still acting for the Knights of the Knights Temple, and that the service was in defence of the Church. If the investigations of Furness Abbey were to the detriment of fountains, then it would be required to act. Joseph withdrew his hood and settled it around his broad shoulders. His hands alternately grasped and brushed back his horsetail of long, dark hair. He was in a thoughtful mood as he looked down upon the abbey's fish ponds and ripening orchards. High wispy clouds swirled unobtrusively across the pale blue sky, and the air carried the sweet scent of fruit. The sound of a Gregorian chant drifted in the westerly breeze. <laughs> Joseph listened enviously to the choir monk's deep tones. Their gentle voices filled the theatre with lyrical rhythmic sound and silenced the chatter of nearby curious birds. He was impressed with the size and splendour of the abbey and pleasantly surprised that despite its enormity it remained secluded in a deep wooded valley. He imagined an unwary traveller would be astonished by its sudden appearance. Joseph was of the opinion that it was small in size to the Abbey of Fountains. Roman's day papers he'd studied recorded the Abbey grounds as totaling 65 acres. He observed the porter's lodge and security of the gated entry, the high wall enclosure and the tall bell tower, all built with local red sandstone. An additional building was under construction and by the height of the scaffolding, Joseph surmised it was nearing the stage of completion. He noted also that there were excavations already underway for further expansion. There was a sudden clamour of activity inside the enclosure, and the choir's musical chant was interrupted by the sounds of goods being loaded onto carts and wagons. The wheels of the water mill had commenced a daily grind, driven by the power of the fast-flowing stream. It was recorded that the Abbey had over 200 laymen working in its many outer granges, and more than 20 secular servants housed within the monastery. 
Joseph took note of an impressive building set aside from the monastery and knew from his own experience with the layout of fountains that it would be the abbot's residence. There are many signs of wealth, he thought. A young woman was leaving the building with a brisk stride. She was holding a covered wicker basket in one hand, whilst the other brushed vigorously at her apron before lifting to tidy her hair. He returned to the stallion, swung himself into the saddle and drew the hood over his tonsure. He had seen and heard enough for the present. They had witnessed three ships anchored off near Peel Island. The seasonal sea trade had commenced in earnest, and the haste of their journey now appeared to be warranted. Joseph felt rewarded as he made the first entry in his diary. Marie Cog, trading vessel. The name suggested it belonged to the Abbey's fleet, but the quantity of vessels trading, regardless of ownership, would be of the utmost importance. The time had arrived for him to seek an audience with the abbot. With the knowledge acquired from Vicar Robert of Raffin Dalton, he felt well armed and confident of success. But the Vicar of Dalton had warned him to be cautious of asking the wrong questions of the wrong people, and Chaucer's had never been one to dis- disregard what he believed to be well-intentioned advice. District landholders were queuing in the Abbey's service area, <clears throat> collecting their weekly provisions, a payment for the crops and livestock. Women were carrying loaves of bread from the bakehouse, and the men loading meat from the kitchens. Others were carrying beer and sacks of oats from the monastery's barns. The sound of the porter's bell alerted a small group of men. They were nearby and stood offloading their wagon towards the arrival of the three visitors. Joseph made himself known to the porter, and as the gates were opened for the monks to enter, the group of men left their work in the loading yard. Joseph had one eye on the three men approaching him, and the other on a young woman with a covered basket. Not the usual woman of the fields, he thought. She slowed to a more leisurely gait and headed towards the wagon. She was lithe and her walk graceful. Without breaking pace, she joined the three men and walked alongside them. Speaking animatedly to the youngest and most handsome of the three, she leaned forward to whisper in his ear, leaving him laughing out loud and bright-eyed as she walked away. Joseph watched her climb onto the loaded wagon, pleasantly surprised at her beauty. The tunic failed to hide the curves of her full bosom, and the long, wheatened golden hair had been bunched and pinned. That's most certainly the young woman described by the vicar of Dalton, he thought. He remembered the vicar's words. Take heed that the contents of her basket are not always as they seem. They say the basket is usually empty when she leaves, her purse full, and she travels often between the witch and the abbey. He noticed the wagon preparing to leave as soon as she arrived, and then turned his attention to the two three men approaching. An elderly bald-headed man was leading the group, his bushy red beard suggesting the hair had slipped from its anchorage. He was of a heavier build, much taller than his two companions, and he walked with a swagger and loping stride. Joseph thought that the two younger men would almost certainly be his sons, and they were lengthening their stride to keep pace. Having little choice, 
Joseph reined in his stallion and spoke to the three men blocking the path. Bonjour, mes amis. Qu'est-ce que vous vous demandez? Joseph's greeting drew a blank, and the older man turned his attention to the pale-skinned Daniel. The brother is asking the nature of your business, sir. The bearded landowner welcomed the familiar tongue. He stepped forward and took hold of the white stallion's reins, with confidence and an air of authority. Without looking at Joseph, he struck the horse's nozzle with supposedly deep concentration. Joseph was not sure if his manner was one of disrespect or of curiosity. The old man looked up and spoke to Joseph, the phrase rolling quickly from his tongue. It's hot for sale. Joseph turned and appealed to his novice. He's asking if your house is for sale, Brother Joseph. The tall man turned to Daniel and introduced himself. My name is Richard Olvise. I'm the holder of farmland close by. This is my eldest son John and my youngest son Adam. Joseph didn't wish to offend and considered his answer. Tell him that the horses are the property of the church, but we're barter with your horse and one of the pack horses. Daniel looked at Joseph in surprise. I will need my horse for the return journey. Tell him anyway. I'm sure it's only my white horse he wants. Daniel pointed out the two horses. Perhaps you would like to purchase these two. The landowner shook his head and suggested that either the white or black horse be considered. Joseph showed indifference and turned away, but the tall man Richard was not so easily dismissed. As the farmer guided them towards the stables, he informed them that his family were well known to the abbey and that they attended weekly for the supplies. He insisted that Joseph contact him if he had a change of mind. He then pointed to the way to the refectory and explained that most of the landholders would be attending for main meal. Daniel nodded and turned to question Adam. Will the pretty woman be your wife? Adam beamed and pushed his chest out. He was about to answer when his father's huge hand blocked the back of his head. Thou the best show respect, lad. Your mother carried you months before you found your way out, and all you can think of is climbing back in again. It was Richard's favourite saying, and he addressed Daniel as if in apology. He's young like yourself, but of a different nature. Daniel blushed, and wished he'd never asked the question. They all parted the company on good terms, but Richard of Lees lingered and found it hard to disguise his disappointment at the loss of trade. Joseph's first meeting with that guy was more convivial than he'd expected, and the language more familiar. He'd expected someone older, a little plumper perhaps, he thought, with lack of exercise and excessive food. But what guy was as tall and erect as the landholder he'd recently met in the grounds, lean and athletic, with a bony face and set back steel-blue eyes. His tonsure was set amongst black hair, seeming almost out of place. Joseph knew from his own experience that with his ceremonial robes, Abbot Guy could have passed for a soldier in the King's army. <laughs> to be continued...